Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast, edition number 101, as we celebrated our 100th podcast last week. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. As it happens, we are recording this on Friday, and by the time you hear this, assuming that's on Saturday, we will have also been putting in an appearance at the Master Investor Show in London, where we're going to uh, be talking a little bit about uh, recent events as well. We might be able to get a recording of that uh, in due course. But anyway, Simon, here we are. We have a lot of news out there, and we've had some quite significant market moves this week. So it's been quite difficult to uh, disentangle how much of that is down to the situation in Ukraine, how much is down to the actions of central banks, and how much is down to uh, what's happening in China. So there's a lot to take in. But uh, give us a summary of where you think we are and what's been happening this week. Well, let's, as always, start with the numbers. I mean, in the first four trading days of the week, the investment companies sector uh, found itself in positive territory, up 3.3%. That was slightly behind the wider UK market, the FTSE All Share up 3.4% over that same four-day period. It's worth reminding people that year-to-date, though, the investment company sector still finds itself in negative territory, uh, down 10.6% compared with a fall for 1.3% for the FTSE All Share. But we've seen the sector average discount bounce around a little bit this week. It probably started the week about 5.3%. It's currently just the right side of 5%, 4.8% to be precise, but that compares with an average of 3% in 2021. So you're right, markets have jumped around a lot. I mean, investment company sector was up 3.6% alone in one day on Wednesday. And you're right, there are a number of things going on. Obviously, everyone's following the events in Ukraine very closely. Any updates on negotiations carefully poured over. Um, but also, we've seen some big moves from China as well. Initially, following the news that uh, a COVID outbreak had led to a shutdown in a number of its cities. Then a day or so later, uh, the authorities there came out with a statement making it clear they were going to strongly support the economy and also signalled their intention to support the stock exchange as well. And that saw very dramatic moves in Chinese equities. I think Tencent and Alibaba were both up 20% in share price terms in that single day. But the oil price is, is moving around. We saw it dip below $100 a barrel at one stage. It's now back up again. And you also mentioned the central banks. It has been a big week for them. The Federal Reserve have announced their first hike since 2018. That was a 25 basis point increase in the interest rate and signaled that there's six more likely to come for the rest of this year. And back in the UK, the Bank of England also raised interest rates by 25 basis points, although struck a slightly more dovish tone. So lots of moving parts to this market at the moment, and that could explain the volatility that we're seeing. Indeed, there has been a lot of volatility, both in the markets overall and also within markets, within the investment trust sector as well. Uh, as you say, very difficult to disentangle these various uh, factors. And that's what you get in periods of market uh, turbulence like this. Everybody might have a view about what's the most important thing. It's often not the thing that's at the head of the news bulletins. It tends to be uh, rather more subtle than that. I think I might put forward the proposition that uh, the biggest signal that the markets have been responding to has been the confirmation that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates throughout the year and in a series of increases. Uh, I think that is, as far as I can tell, the most significant impact. But obviously, there are also interesting developments uh, surrounding the war in Ukraine. There has been reports that uh, the negotiations about a, a possible agreed end to the war at some point uh, it will be possible, and that would obviously remove one element of uncertainty from the big picture. Uh, but of course, well, we know the basic terms that will be there. We don't know whether they, it's going to be an agreement. We don't know what are the second order effects of that agreement. For example, you know what will happen to sanctions, what will happen to all the supply issues in the energy markets, and so on. That's all still to play out. So there is still a lot of uncertainty about. And uh, if you do venture into the markets and try to catch some of these turning tides, you have to be pretty nimble. If we look at some of the investment trusts that have moved around a lot, perhaps you could give us some flavour of that. Uh, you mentioned the Chinese market, what's happened there. And presumably the Chinese investment trusts uh, have been one of those who have uh, bounced back after what has been a very uh, sustained downward move. Absolutely. So in the first four days of this week, we've seen the Chinese funds really rebound. Uh, the JP Morgan China Growth and Income Fund, as at the close of Thursday, was up just short of 10%, not too far behind it. 
we saw names such as the Bailey Giver China Growth Trust, that was up 7.4% over that period. But a number of uh, investment trusts did very well. I mean, so far, it's been a very good week for the Bailey Gifford stable, who have endured a more difficult year this year. So the Bailey Gifford US Growth Fund up just short of 12% in the first four days of this week. Scottish Mortgage up just short 10%, just under 10% in that period. The C shares of the Shehalian Fund up 9%. Keystone Positive Change up 8.7%. So it's definitely been a good week for those more growth-orientated funds. Private equity also doing quite well. Standard Life private equity up 14% in the first four days. But while there are winners, there are always losers in every week, or certainly those that have done not quite so well. So unsurprisingly, it's still difficult times for the JP Morgan Russian Securities Investment Trust. That was down 13%. And also we saw some of those investment trusts that had previously been performing very strongly, particularly on the commodities sector, also struggling a little bit. So BlackRock Energy and Resources Income down about 6%, uh, and just behind them, BlackRock World Mining. So quite choppy markets, but some dramatic share price moves this week. And mostly it's been in the form of, as you've pointed out, kind of reversal of previous trends. So the things that have done well in the early part of this year, including the commodities, have taken a bit of a step back. And uh, while the things that have been really badly hit, such as you mentioned the Chinese trusts and Scottish mortgage and, and the tech trusts have come bouncing back from that situation. And I've noticed also that uh, smaller companies are doing quite well again. They had a, a better week this week. Again, they've taken a big hit this year, some of them down, you know, 20, 25% or so over three months. But this, I think it's worth emphasizing that this is not totally normal. I mean, we don't often see moves of this kind, you know, following on from uh, moves of a similar kind in previous weeks. I mean, this is a pretty exceptional climate, the kind of climate in which uh, a lot of investors do find themselves in difficulty, um, you know, kind of gripped by emotional responses to what's going on. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think that's a very fair comment. If you're just trying to play the markets on a very short term basis, then quite clearly you could get things quite badly wrong at the moment uh, because of this kind of flip flopping nature that we're seeing. Conversely, those who probably take a longer term view, and that seems to be the general advice for most investors, it's always helpful to take a long term view or can probably navigate their way through this a little bit. But for those more short term orientated investors, it would be quite easy to get the wrong side of some of these moves. Indeed, it can. And uh, experience suggests that that is often what happens. I mean, we noticed I read in the newspapers this week that uh, a number of very large and indeed quite renowned hedge funds have had a really poor start to the year. They've been the wrong side of the market moves. It's not just what's happened in equities, but also in bonds, where we've seen a very strong move in bond yields, responding to the news from central banks, but also uh, to other factors. There's people who are taking view. You've got a view about inflation or a view about economic growth slowing down. It is, as you say, very easy to get on the wrong side of these things. And it doesn't matter if even however fabulously well endowed you are as a hedge fund, they are taking these short-term bets and they're getting found out in many cases, while one or two others are doing well, uh, but they're getting found out by these market conditions. So they are very treacherous. I think it's fair to conclude from that also, Sam, I don't know what your kind of feedback from talking to big players in the market, that uh, this volatility is not going to go away uh, overnight. It's not like suddenly we've moved into calm waters. Uh, I get the impression that most professional investors expect this kind of volatility to go on for a little while because there is still so many different variables out there. Yeah, and we've just run through a list of those and all those things are going to be with us for a period of time. Let's hope the situation in Ukraine improves in short order, but there's a chance, of course, that it could be prolonged. But you're right, just talking to wealth managers this week, I mean, clearly they're having a difficult time of it as any investor would be at the moment. I mean, one comment that one made to me was, so one of the things that wealth managers have to do is if their client portfolios fall below a threshold, it's normally 10%, a letter is triggered, a material change in value. And unsurprisingly, over the last few weeks, a lot of these 10% fall letters have been sent out to the ultimate clients. And one wealth manager said to me that they got, again, quite a surprised response from their clients because they hadn't appreciated how much the markets were falling. Just looking at the FTSE All share, which has actually been quite well insulated by some of the more dramatic moves, not least because the exposure that we have in this country to uh, oil companies has meant that the UK market's actually held up better than a number of global indices. So that's caused some surprise. But yeah, difficult times for investors. And I think it really does pay to take a long term view. Indeed. And of course, the other uh, comment I might make about that is that, uh, you know, we had a couple of years of very exceptional returns. Well, once the pandemic was out of the way, we saw the markets come back very, very strongly. Uh, 
you know, partly fueled by uh, all the stimulus money that's been thrown around by governments. And, you know, those sort of good times often are met with a uh, reaction in subsequent periods. You know, markets do go to extremes, as we know. So it's going to be a tricky period for a while, I think. And a lot depends on what your attitude to risk is and uh, what your circumstances are and so on. We all know that. So let's move on. We haven't, uh, not surprisingly, we haven't had much fundraising <laughs> this week. Uh, that's not going to be very easy in these market conditions. And uh, there hasn't been much in the way of corporate uh, developments either. I mean, the situation at JPM Russian Securities, I think it's pretty much unchanged from last week. So there's been no further announcements from them or from the other trusts that are caught up in the freeze on uh, transfer of, of assets and so on that is affecting Russian securities, and they're basically not moving at the moment. So uh, let's move on then. We can talk about some results, though. And this is always one of the vagaries of of the investment trust sector, indeed, the corporate uh, listed sector generally. A lot of trusts are now producing their annual results for 2021. But almost invariably, I was reading through some of the uh, chairman's reports this week, uh, they all have to kick off by saying, well, that was last year, but but this year has actually got off to a rather different start. And and so uh, I'm going to tell you about this year rather than last year, which is a shame in a way, because many of them have produced some very good results for last year. Uh, as we know, the markets were strong. So let's kick off then with some global trusts. We've got four that have reported results this year. And we're going to kick off with EP Global Opportunities, that is ticker EPG. And they've put out their annual results for the 31st of December to the 31st of December. And as we know, there's uh, there's big change afoot at this particular trust. That's absolutely right. So just to kind of cover off the numbers to start with, in that 12-month period, EP Global Opportunities generated an NAV total return of 5.1%. Uh, that compared with a rise of 20% for the FTSE All World Index. In share price terms, they came in at 4.6%, so just a little bit under their NAV return. So obviously, a significant underperformance compared with an index of global equities. But it's worth noting that the manager here, which is a chap called Sandy Nairn, is really looking to do something quite different. So I think there was a comment in the report that the manager started 2021 with a very cautious stance and became more cautious as the year progressed. And that's evidenced by the fact that the level of cash on the balance sheet of this investment trust increased from 13% to 28% of net assets. Now, obviously, that acted as a drag on performance. There's actually been some quite big changes. I mean, Jonathan, you just alluded to the fact that there's been a change of approach as shareholders have voted to allow this investment trust to become self-managed. Sandy Nairn will continue as, as the manager um, and there's also a tender offer, 20% tender offer has been held. But in terms of the portfolio's composition, there's been some quite big changes as well. So in 2021, saw a big decrease in the exposure to Asia Pacific X Japan equities that went from 15% to 4% of the portfolio. Japan, the weighting uh, into Japan came down from 22% to 13%. And yet at the same time, European exposure increased from 23% to 35%. But the manager believes that equity markets remain fully valued and commented that, and this is a quote, the key to optimizing returns will be retaining the patience and resolve to wait until genuine bargains emerge. Indeed. And as well, regular listeners know, I have written a book with Sandy Nairn, among other things, and uh, I'm well familiar with his views. He was uh, spent 10 years working for uh, the famous investor, Sir John Templeton, who was very much of the same kind of view as Sandy, and that's the philosophy that he uh, looks to employ in what he's doing. And uh, of course, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> you never wish ill on your competitors, but you know, the fact that he's had such a negative position in going into this year for reasons he explained in this book he's published, The End of the Everything Bubble, uh, will have given him some pleasure because the market sort of selling off has actually kind of vindicated that approach. But of course, if he had a big exposure to Europe, that may have cost him during this more recent period because the war in Ukraine has, uh, you know, come out of the blue and uh, completely uh, changed the outlook for European equities. So very interesting to contrast and compare. He's obviously fairly bearish about the outlook for investment returns from here and hoping that uh, better times will come around when valuations come down. I mean, they were very high last year, but they just went on staying high. So uh, as a value investor, he's hoping for mean reversion to see that uh, process continue. And in a, an environment of rising bond yields, he might well be right. But, uh, you know, it's a big call to what he's said he's going to do, changing the, the whole mandate of the trust. And uh, we'll have to see how that pans out. OK, let's move on and talk about uh, Midwind International, ticker MWY, which has had uh, these are interim results for the six months to the 31st of December. Tell us about what they've had to say. 
Yep. So in that period, they generated an NAV total return of 10.5%, that compared with a rise of 7.7% for the MSCI All Country World Index. In share price terms, it was even stronger. Actually, they were up 11.9% as basically their premium rating increased a little bit. But aside from the performance, it's actually, I think, what the managers here have done to the portfolio. So just to remind people, it's managed by Simon Edelston and Alex Illingworth of Artemis. And I think they would probably describe their approach as being balanced. I mean, they certainly worry about valuations, but they try to target high quality growth companies. But in this particular period, there have been some major changes to the portfolio. There's certainly been a greater weighting to companies with uh, higher dividend yields and basically a tilt away from US tech and greater exposure to what would be seen as more defensive sectors, ordinarily telecoms, uh, railway, farmers, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, they took profits on some of those US tech names on valuation grounds. They do like themes as well. They're quite thematic in terms of the way they build the portfolio. So themes that work for them, healthcare costs, online services and building the future. But certainly they are, I think it's fair to say, kind of cautious on valuations in general. And that's really kind of prompted the change in the portfolio's composition. But the chairman of this investment trust is a gentleman called Russell Napier, who is quite well known in financial circles. And certainly his chairman's report, particularly the outlook element of it, is well worth a read if you want a kind of bearish view, I think it's fair to say, on the outlook for global equities, some some very good commentary around the prospects for inflation. So it will be interesting in retrospect when we look back on uh, this year and how managers changed their portfolios last year, if they did. And uh, those who have turned to a more bearish disposition uh, may well turn out to be vindicated. We don't know yet. But uh, if so, they'll have been doing their job. And I too would uh, certainly commend Russell Napier's comments. I did do an interview with him recently for the Moneymakers Circle, where this week we have a profile of RIT Capital Partners, which is a very well-established and interesting trust with a long history and also some interesting perspective on current markets. I'm going to move on then. We'll talk about Smithson Investment Trust, ticker SSON. This is a trust which has raised an awful lot of money last year in uh, in secondary issuance and is managed by Simon Barnard, who is a, a protege, I think it's fair to say, of Terry Smith, a fundsmith fame. So uh, what was their performance like last year? So in the year to the 31st of December 2021, their NAV total return was up 18.9%. That compared to a rise of 17.8% for the benchmark. In share price terms, that came in at 18.1%. But you're right, it's very much the kind of the Terry Smith mentality. So it's a very concentrated portfolio, about 30, 31 investments. Again, that focus on high quality businesses. What worked for them in the period? Well, it was stocks such as Fortinet, Equifax and Domino's Pizza Group, though there were some detractors as well. And that included Sabre, Ambu and IPG Photo Onyx. But they have raised a lot of money. So in this period alone, so in 2021, they raised capital worth £534 million just through regular issuance. So it has grown substantially and it now has a market cap of about £2.8 billion. Yes, we've discussed this before. That's a pretty remarkable achievement for a way of secondary issuing. £500 million is uh, a lot more than most investment trusts raise when they first come to the market. So we'll come back and have a look at that. Uh, we'll compare the sort of performance, the ratings of these trusts in a moment when we've talked about the fourth global trust, which is Witten Investment Trust ticker WTAN, who have also had annual results for the year to 31st of December. In which time they generated an NAV total return of 15.8%. That compared with a rise of 19.9% for their benchmark. In share price terms, less than the NAV actually, it came in at 11.9%. And the underperformance was attributed to the composition of the benchmark particularly in the final quarter of last year. This is a multi-manager approach. And in the period, only one manager actually outperformed their respective benchmarks. However, gearing was positive. That added 1.8% to performance, as was a very active share buyback program. That added about 0.6% to the NAV performance, worth just short of £11 million. Uh, as a function of the fact they bought back about 8% of their share capital in the period, obviously at a discount. And that effectively kind of offset the vast majority of the fund's ongoing charges, if you want to look at it in those terms. But in more positive news, they announced an increase to their dividend that was up 2.8%. And that represented the 47th year of increases. That uh, dividend was uncovered. I think the revenue earnings per share, even though they were up 17%, came in at 3.6p 
whereas the total dividend represented 5.6p. But there were no changes to the six core managers. However, two specialist funds were added to the, the roster and they will be focused on unlisted companies. It's also worth mentioning as well that there is a kind of directly managed sleeve to this investment trust that focuses on investment companies managed by Andrew Bell and James Hart. And that generated a performance of 18.8%. And the names in that sleeve, there's a number of private equity names, actually, such as Apex and Princess Private Equity. Also, BlackRock World Mining did well from in that period, whereas uh, detractors included Sincona. Yes, I can't resist making a little comment there. I always have a wry smile when uh, companies come up with a statement right like the one you've paraphrased there, saying that the underperformance was attributed to the composition of the benchmark. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's you know, if, if that's not the right benchmark, then perhaps you shouldn't uh, have it as a benchmark, I have to say. You know, you can't really blame the benchmark for, <laughs> for what's happened over the year. But anyway, that's just a perhaps a rather unfair comment on my part. It does uh, raise an interesting question, though, which is looking through these uh, various uh, global trusts, they're all very different. I mean, that's one of the things that strikes you. A good example of the diversity you can find in the investment trust sector. If you're bearishly minded, then, uh, you know, EP Global Opportunities is at one extreme. And if you're a trust like Smithson, which invests in global smaller companies, you know, they're going to go on doing what they're doing, which is buying equities in growth companies or companies that they think are going to deliver good value over time. So uh, let's just see how they're rated in the market, first of all. So if we compare the discounts, certainly on the three trusts in the global sector, and then we can compare that to Smithson as well, which is in the global smaller companies sector. So how do the ratings look? So the strongest rating is for Midwind International. So the, the Artemis Fund, I got that on a premium of about 3% or so at the moment. Uh, we've got Witten on a discount, somewhere between about 5 and 6%. And as I've mentioned, they've been very active on the buyback front, uh, ensuring that discount doesn't get too wide. And then we've got EP Global Opportunities as well. That's on about a 9% discount. Obviously, they had that tender offer that we talked about a week or two ago, which was oversubscribed. So there may be a bit of a perception that there's a, a bit of a stock overhang there. And Smithson, how does that uh, rate? That's obviously last year they was trading at a premium. They issued lots of stock. 500 millions worth or 500 million plus. They've kept that rating, presumably, have they? Yeah, I've got it on just a very small discount at the moment, about 0.7%. But yes, you're right. They, they invariably trade around NEV. But of course, they'd be one of the trusts that's been hit quite hard in the year so far, I think. Is that right? I mean, can we? Uh, is it possible to look at uh, how these different trusts have performed since the start of the year or over the last three months or whatever period you'd like to look at? Sure, yeah. So I got Smithson down over the last three months in share price terms, about 18% or so. That compares with a decline for the MSCI World Small Companies, which is not their benchmark, but it's vaguely comparable. That's down 3%. In terms of the three investment trusts that focus on the larger cap global equities, well, perhaps unsurprisingly, EP Global Opportunities has held up the best over that three-month period. It's uh, actually up 1%. And as mentioned, obviously, there is that kind of value approach, also quite a large cash buffer as well. Midwine down about 8% in share price terms over that period, and Witten down about 7%. But, you know, just to kind of give people a feel for that number, if you look at those investment trusts with a much more explicit growth approach, I mean, Scottish mortgages down 27% over that three-month period. You've got funds like Manchester and London down 25%. But I think probably the thing to stress is that obviously three months is a very short period. We can, we can accept it has been a very volatile period for the market. So if you look over a kind of five-year share price total return measure, then you've got Midwind up 86% over that period, Witten up 32%, and EP Global Opportunities up 8%. Well, these are very popular. Many of these trusts, at least uh, certainly uh, Midwind, Smithson and Witten, you know, are widely held. And as I say, you have there's plenty of choice out there if you want to reflect a view about where the world is going. And that, I think, is healthy. We'll move on and talk now then about the UK sector. And um, we've got a couple of names to talk about here. Let's kick off with Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income Trust, ticker ASCI. Not to be confused with the Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Trust, of which it is a sister trust. Tell us how the uh, Income Trust did last year. It did very well, actually. So NAV total return up 30.4%. That compared with a rise for its benchmark of 21.9%. That's the NSCI X Investment Trust Index. In share price terms, not quite as good, actually. The share price total return came at 22.9%. And that was a reflection of the fact its discount widened in the period. Abby Glenny and Amanda Yeaman are responsible for this one. They work closely with uh, Harry Nimmo, 
who's the manager on the Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Growth Fund. But, you know, they share similarities. So a bit more of an income focus, as the name would suggest, but it's about quality growth momentum. And the names that worked very well for them last year included Lion Trust, Tatan Asset Management, Morgan Sindel. Conversely, detractors included Games Workshop, Seraphin and Symphoma. But it's all about the stock selection, and that's what benefited performance. A relatively concentrated portfolio, about 53 names or so at the moment. Uh, They've also got a small allocation, about 2% to some fixed income names. Uh, It's worth talking about the dividend as well, because that's a part of the story. So dividends totaled 8.85p in the year, and that was up 7.4%. And in fact, their revenue earnings per share, that saw a big increase in the year, up 73% to 9.69p. So I would suggest that's a reflection of how difficult things became in in 2020 uh, in terms of dividends being paid by some of these mid and small cap names. But what it meant was that the dividend was covered for 2021. Okay, and then let's move on and talk about JP Morgan Cleverhouse Investment Trust. This is another vintage investment trust, I think it's fair to say, with a long history and uh, it's one of the uh, AIC's dividend heroes, trusts that have increased their dividend every year for many years. Uh, and what did their results last year look like? Yeah, it was a good set of results, actually. So in 2021, the NAV total return was up 21.5%. That compared to a rise of 18.3% for the benchmark. In share price terms, uh, even stronger, actually up 24.3% as the rating moved from a small discount to a small premium. This sits in the UK equity income sector. You mentioned about being a, a dividend hero. And actually, they announced their 49th consecutive annual dividend increase. So the dividend was up 3.4% on the year. It came in at 30.5p. And in fact, that was covered. Their revenue per share was 30.8p for the year. And that was up 33% year on year. So this is a familiar story. We're seeing these UK funds really benefiting from the increase in dividends being paid to them last year in 2021. But William Meadham and Callum Abbott at JP Morgan, a very experienced investment team, they benefited from holdings such as Ashton Group, Watches of Switzerland and Impacts Asset Management. Also, uh, they did well by not holding Unilever. Uh, conversely, the detractors in that particular year were names such as Entain, Games Workshop and not holding Glencore. But the yield on this one uh, is about 4.3% at the moment. Yes, again, it may be worth making the point here that uh, both these trusts, being UK-focused trusts, they both perform better than uh, any of the global investment trusts last year, which has not always been the case in recent years. Uh, Benefit from the fact the UK market did relatively well last year compared to global markets. Always nice to hear that, I guess. But again, these two trusts are rated in very different ways, I think, and have had quite uh, contrasting experiences over the years. What can you tell us about the ratings and the performance of these two? They're not directly comparable, of course, but that's the whole point. And again, more diversity in the UK focus trust world. Yeah, that's right. So Claverhouse is on a small discount at the moment, probably 1% or so. Um, probably over the last 12 months, it's averaged around NAV. It's got a market cap of about £423 million, pounds, so a pretty decent size. Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income, that's a smaller fund actually with a market cap of about £66 million at present. And it's trading on a discount of about 18%. And that has been derated. Over the last 12 months, it's probably averaged about a 13, 14% discount. So we have seen that rating weaken of late. Okay, so now we can move on and look at some overseas trusts which have produced results uh, this week. Interestingly enough, there's a couple of Japanese trusts which have both produced annual results for the year to 31st of December. So we can have a look at how they've performed. Uh, and again, very contrasting fortunes here, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So AVI Japan Opportunity Trust is the first one, uh, and this invests in smaller mid-cap Japanese equities. These were annual results for 2021, at which time they generated an NAV total return of 12.3%. And that compared with a decline of 1.4% for their benchmark, which was the MSCI Japan Small Cap Index. In share price terms, also did well up 10% as the, the premium just narrowed in a little bit. But it's quite a specialist investment trust. This one it's run by asset value investors who are also responsible for AVI Global Trust. Uh, which used to be called British Empire Securities. But this Japanese vehicle, very focused, about 26 holdings or so, Joe Baumfreud and Tom Trina responsible for it. But again, it's this idea that they're trying to unlock value, particularly from overcapitalized businesses. Uh, it was launched in October 2018, so it's kind of building its track record. But the, the things that did particularly well in this period 
Uh, this was, I think their two largest holdings actually were taken private and they were done on respective premiums of 66% and 50%. So I saw decent uplifts on that move. Um, so they're still talking about the opportunity that they're seeing in their marketplace. Uh, interestingly enough, there is actually a liquidity event for this one. So I think we talked in recent weeks about the Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income Fund that had that annual liquidity event. In the case of AVI Japan Opportunity Trust, at launch, they said they would offer a liquidity event in October 2022. So that's approaching and every two years thereafter. And that would be on a full or partial basis uh, at the board's discretion. Well, at the moment, I can tell you that AVI Japan Opportunity Trust is trading around NAV. So whether uh, any kind of liquidity event is, is merited or not will, remains to be seen, but that's for the board to decide. And the second trust we're going to talk about is Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon, ticker BGS. The AVI Japan Opportunity Trust is ticker AJOT. And they've also had a year, but again, they've had a very uh, disappointing year, I think, in common with uh, you know their style has been out of favour. Uh, tell us about their results and how that compares to what uh, the AVI Trust has done. Yeah, so quite a different story. So um, the NAV total return was down about 24.1% in the year. And it's worth saying it's the 12 months to the end of January 2022. And that compared with a decline of 4.3% for the benchmark return. The share price return was down 28.5% as the rating moved from a 5% premium to a 1% discount. But it's all about the names, the stocks in the portfolio. Um, unsurprisingly, uh, it has a focus, this particular investment trust, on high growth, small disruptive Japanese businesses. Praveen Kumar has been responsible for this one for a number of years. Uh, and, you know, we caught up with him this week to have a chat about the results. And he made the point that despite some marked share price falls, that the underlying companies, uh, in his opinion, are absolutely still delivering on, on the growth prospects. And he remains, you know, very excited about some of the prospects for those kind of companies. So he talks about the factory automation businesses that he, the portfolio is exposed to. He talks about some of the, the private companies. There are three private companies in the portfolio, including one called Spiber that kind of caught our eye that creates proteins in a process inspired by how spiders create their webs. So they're certainly not short of ideas, but clearly a much more difficult period for them. Indeed, I mean that's been a very good long-term performer, Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon. So this is a bit of a bit of a turn up for the books, I guess, uh, in some ways. The style factors seem to have caught them out in this period, and they're not going to change that style, I imagine. Uh, I'm sure they said the same thing to you when you spoke to them. No, that's right. And in fact, you know, to that point, I think in that 12-month period to the end of January, there was only 13% portfolio turnover. So, you know, very low by most active managers' standards and. Again, uh, you know, Praveen made the point that when they kind of went through the portfolio very, very carefully, just after the whole kind of pandemic thing kicked off and really wanted to get a feel for those businesses that would be hit operationally by the pandemic, I think there was only one name, which was a kind of online travel agent that they identified as being problematic and, and then for decided to divest. But overall, they very much decided to, to stick the course with their, with their portfolio of names. Tell us about the ratings on these two, because I, you know, normally you see a trust with a kind of results like that, you'd expect them to go out a little bit out of favour of the discount to widen. Uh, but uh, has that happened in this case? They're both highly rated, actually. So AVI Japan Opportunity, I've got it on about a two percent premium or so at the moment. That's over the last twelve months. It was on about a one percent premium, so that's broadly in line. Uh, the Bailey Gifford Nippon Fund, I've got that on a small premium at the moment. And again, its average over the previous 12 months, it's trading on about a 1% premium. So both highly rated funds. Indeed. and uh, But again, very contrasting approaches. Okay, we can move on now and talk about another popular trust, which is Fidelity European, ticker FEV. This is a trust that has uh, now quite a long history. And uh, many years ago, used to be managed by Anthony Bolton, as I recall. How did they perform in the period under review, which again is the calendar year to the 31st of December last year? Yeah, they did well. So they generated an NAV total return of 23.5%. That compared with a rise of 17.4% for their benchmark. Uh, in share price terms, well, that came in at 21.7% as the discount just widened a little bit. But um, it's very much focused on what they describe as attractively valued dividend growing businesses. So the names that worked for them in the period were companies such as ASML, Hermes, LVMH, Moe Hennessy, uh, and they also had some exposure to some, some private equity names as well, while conversely healthcare detracted. 
But uh, this um, portfolio is now managed by Sam Morse and Marcel Stotzel. And as you say, Anthony Bolton was responsible back at its launch, which I think was 1991. And they made the point that they've gone past their 30th anniversary uh, and that apparently if you'd invested £10,000 at launch in 1991, that would be worth not too far off half a million pounds now. So that's an annualised return of about 14% or so, because I could see you trying to do the maths in your head. I was quickly doing the maths in my head, as you said, and I came up with a number slightly, you know, two decimal points, but, uh, you know, pretty close to that, I have to say, yeah. That's uh, the power of compounding. Very impressive. <laughs> Thank you, Simon, for that. You saved me uh, a lot of mental effort there. Let's talk about uh, Fundsmith Emerging Equities Trust, ticker FEET, which uh, has also produced an annual report for the year the 31st of December. And this was obviously founded by Terry Smith and Fundsmith again, uh, but has not done uh, quite as well as uh, Smithson, to put it mildly. No, I think that's fair. And in this particular 12-month period, they uh, generated an NAV total return of 3.8%. That represented an outperformance, actually. Their benchmark was down 1.4%. That's the MSCI Emerging in Frontier Markets Index. However, in share price terms, that was down 3.4% as the discount widened out to about 10% from 3%. But this is quite a different emerging markets vehicle. So a significant overweight position to India that represented about 53% of net assets compared with 12% for the index. Also very underweight China. China's about 32% for the benchmark. They've got about 16% of the portfolio there. And it's also very concentrated as well. 38 holdings. Uh, they saw seven additions, seven disposals in the year. But again, it's this whole kind of fun Smith idea, you know, good quality companies, you know, huge active share, which means it's very different to the benchmark. But the chair made the point in, in the results that since launch, they've generated a compound annual return of 5.8%. And quote, that's below our aspirations, referring to the board. Uh, in share price terms, the compound annual return is 4.3%, and that compares with 7.7% for their benchmark. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it does, again, underline the point that, uh, that you know, Fundsmith and Smithson have been extraordinarily successful by applying a very similar philosophy, but it doesn't seem to work in emerging markets to anything like the same extent. And that's a number of reasons for that quite a lot to do with the way the markets are treated and, and large companies, uh, subsidiaries of multinationals and so on, how they are regarded by investors. So it has been an interesting experience. Uh, and I guess the, the board is right to acknowledge that the performance has been disappointing. So we can move on. Uh, just one quick question there. Fidelity European, obviously Europe has taken quite a big hit in the last few weeks because of, well, more recently, the Ukraine war. How has this trust uh, rating held up during that period? And indeed, its performance over the last three months. I've got it on about an 8% discount or so at the moment. That compares with an average of probably 6 to 7% over the previous 12 months. I mean, it has seen share price fall over the last three months, probably about 9% down or so. In NAV terms, it's probably broadly in line with its index down 7%. But over the last five years, always important to look at those long-term returns. Five years, the share price total return is 75%. And that compares a rise of 39% for the FTSE Europe ex-UK index. Okay, so now we can talk about a couple of uh, specialist trusts, so both relatively recent newcomers to the sector. Well, the first one is Digital 9 Infrastructure, ticker DGI9. That's produced some annual results. I think they're their first annual results they've produced. Yeah, that's right. So these were annual results to the end of December, but it's worth noting that they only came to the market at the end of March last year, so only nine months or so. I mean, this fund has been very, very successful in raising quite a lot of capital in a relatively short period of time. So their IPO raised about £300 million back in March. They subsequently raised £450 million. Uh, that was via two secondary fundraisers in June and September. And then I think actually earlier this year, they raised an additional £95 million. So they're certainly not short of capital. So unsurprisingly enough, the annual results are very much focused on how that capital has been deployed. And I think at the end of December, that came in about 62%, including uh, committed funds. Funnily enough, since the start of this year, they've also announced some follow-on investments as well. But in terms of the performance numbers, well, there was a, an, an increase of 6.8% to their NAV. So actually, they generated a total return of 9.8%, uh, which was a, a pretty decent start. Clearly, early days in terms of generating revenue. But they gave some commentary, some insight into how their revenue would look. 
Um, so they estimated recurring monthly revenue of about £3.6 million. And because they invest in digital infrastructure assets, unsurprisingly, they are exposed to some of the global tech giants. And apparently those companies in the fangs, including Microsoft, make up about 35% of their revenue. So very early days for this company, but they are deploying their capital. Yes, it's an interesting one, this one. In some ways, it's more akin at this stage to an operating business than it is to a traditional investment trust because it's dominated by just a few businesses. Let's move on and talk about Literacy Capital, another very interesting, slightly unusual investment trust, uh, ticker BOOK, B-O-O-K. And they've also uh, produced uh, some annual results, even though they too have not yet managed to complete a year as a listed uh, vehicle. Yeah, it's worth noting on this one, actually, that this was an existing fund, an existing vehicle. Um, It came to the market in June last year, but that was effectively a securitization of this existing fund. So we're looking at the annual results for the year and the 31st of December. Very strong uplift in the NAV, up 94% in that period. Obviously, that's a significant outperformance of the FTSE All Share. That was up 14.5%. And the share price is actually up 84% since the admission to the market on the 25th of June last year. But the rise in net assets really reflects the uplifts across their portfolio companies. So I think the stats were that of the 14 direct investments at the end of 2027 delivered a return of at least 100%. So they've seen quite rapid growth in terms of revenue and EBITDA. But just to remind people, this company looks to invest in businesses Sometimes we found us looking to de-risk, so private companies, in other words, or family-owned businesses kind of planning for succession. So we have it in the in the private equity subsector. But at the end of 2021, they had net assets of 166 million. Uh, they included a little bit of cash, about five million pounds or so. One of the other unique aspects of this particular vehicle, and it's worth saying actually, I'm trying very hard not to call it an investment trust because it's applied for investment trust status. Uh, and they're waiting to to receive that. So technically, it isn't an investment trust yet. But one of the unique features of this vehicle is that it looks to make 0.9% of net assets are denoted to charity in any given year. So in 2021, that represented one and a half million pounds and takes the total since inception to 3.4 million. Perhaps as the name would suggest, and certainly the ticker, Book, B-O-O-K, suggests that uh, they're very supportive of reading charities, including one called Bookmark, Bookmark Reading Charity. Yes, it's interesting. Well, again, another interesting example of how, uh, you know, this uh, is a trust that obviously does some good, if you like, direct social good with the proceeds of its investments. But, um, I mean, that's a pretty spectacular return since it came to the market. Uh, what do you think it is about this particular trust that has... Uh, has proved so popular, or was it a case that it just, dare I say it, um, launched a little too cheaply? I think it's very fair to say that, you know, that was a very strong set of results. But I think most people would be wary of extrapolating uh, those kind of returns on a longer term basis. Clearly, this was a privately held vehicle uh, up until June last year. And I think bringing it to market widens out the mandate and the potential that this vehicle has. I think the, the team behind it so Richard Pindar is the CEO, very ambitious for, for prospects for this vehicle and looking for it to grow. And I think there is, as you mentioned, there's quite an altruistic element to this as well. Uh, the idea that you can generate you know, decent uh, returns every year to charitable organisations, I think is a very important part of the story. But yeah, I just caution that that was a very strong set of returns and clearly they will be ambitious to keep making progress as the years go by, but you wouldn't necessarily expect to see it double its NAV every year from here on in. Indeed not. That would uh, certainly make it very special. And it would certainly have a significant increase in its uh, in its book value, I could say. Anyway, I wasn't uh, trying to cast aspersions on it. I think they're obviously a very interesting vehicle and uh, one I think that will um, certainly add luster to the investment trust sector when it finally achieves that status. We talked about it because we classified it as a, a newcomer to the market last year, knowing its eventual destination. Let's move on and talk about private equity then, traditional private equity this is. So we'll talk about Dunedin Enterprise, ticker DNE, and we're also going to talk about JPL Private Equity, uh, ticker JPEL. But these two trusts do have something in common, which you might mention first of all, and we'll quickly um, look through their uh, these results. Yeah, so they're both effectively managed wind-down mode. So what does that mean? Um, shareholders have approved a policy whereby these investment vehicles look to realise their investments over a period of time. So it's not that they're for sellers, far from it, 
And it takes quite a long time, invariably, to wind down these private equity funds. But that's what they're doing at the moment. But uh, both are making good progress on that front. So Dunedin Enterprise announced their annual results for the year ended 31st of December. Um, They generated an NAV total return of 39.5%. That compared to a rise of 23% for the FTSE small cap index. In share price terms, even stronger, actually up 46.3%. So they saw some valuation uplifts in some of their, their holdings. They also generated some realizations as well. So at this point, they're selling down some of their holdings, some of their mature holdings. Uh, so they generated just over £39 million in that particular year. And of that, £26 million was returned through a tender in November. So I think off the top of my head now, they've, they've returned about um, just short of £100 million to shareholders since they adopted this policy. So where are they today or where were they at the end of December? Well, they had net assets of about £73 million at that stage, which included cash of about £24 million. And JPL private equity? Yep. So these were interim results for the six months to the end of December. In that time, they saw their share price increase by about 11% or so, though actually their NAV was down 9%. And that reflected a write-down in evaluation of a company called Corsicana Bedding, and also they had some uh, exposure to some publicly listed companies as well. Uh, and Their share prices impacted the NAV return. But it's one of the things to note when you find an investment trust such as this is in a managed wind down process. As that process goes on, then invariably the remaining assets, the remaining investments become larger positions of the portfolio. And so you can see some uh, big valuation swings or NAV swings as a result of that. But JPL have been very successful in returning cash to shareholders. I think they've now returned uh, nearly $500 million, just short of that, since October 2016 when they adopted this policy. And that included an £85 million redemption offer in August last year. Okay, so we will be saying farewell to those two. Let's move on. We've got one uh, specialist property trust which has produced some interim results, and that is Target Healthcare REIT, ticker THRL. What have they had to say? Yep. So the six-month period saw an NAV to return of 3.4%. Um, the portfolio valuation was actually up 27% in that period, although that included um, some new acquisitions as well. So on a kind of like-for-like valuation uplift, they're up 2.2%, but they made acquisitions of about $191 million, uh, in the period. The rent collection came in at 96%. And the net loan to value ratio, so that's basically how geared they were, uh, that represented just short of 21% of the period end. So in property terms, that's probably a little bit on the low side. So you would imagine over the months uh, ahead that that will increase as they make further acquisitions. In terms of their earnings per share, that came in at 2.36p. That was actually down from 2.66p in the previous six-month period. But that reflected the kind of cash drag uh, because they raised an additional capital of £125 million, pounds, uh, and so that impacted their earnings per share. But their dividends uh, were increased 0.6% to 3.38p, and I think the, the investment team there are pretty confident on their route to cover that dividend once all their capital is deployed. So this obviously is a specialist property REIT dealing with care homes, and uh, these are a good example both this and its uh, Fellow Healthcare Trust Impact Healthcare REIT, uh, not to be confused with broader healthcare investments. Uh, they came to market as alternative assets, offering a yield primarily. And what is the yield on these two now? And uh, are they still trading at a premium? Are they still in demand? Yes, I think is the answer to all those questions. So the yield on target healthcare is about 6% or so at the moment. It's just a little bit under that for impact healthcare REIT, probably 5.5% or so. Uh, in terms of the ratings, Impact Healthcare REITs probably on about a 5% premium, Target Healthcare on a 2% premium. But um, it's perhaps unsurprising that you know we've been talking about market volatility and how various investment companies have been hit very hard over the last three months. Well, you'd barely notice it for these companies. The share price has weakened a little, but we're talking a couple of percent, certainly in the case of Impact Healthcare. Uh, and over the longer term, the numbers still stack up very well. So the share price total return over five years comes in at 48% for Impact Healthcare REIT and 33% for Target Healthcare. 
which you're now going to tell me represents a compound rate of return of what, Simon? <laughs> I'll let you work that one out. <laughs> Very good. Okay, well, I've got my calculator here, and I'm, I'm going to work it out, but uh, I'm going to not share that with everybody just yet. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the announcements this week. It has been a, a pretty remarkable week again in the markets. Just looking ahead, you talked at the beginning of the show about uh, what uh, you think wealth managers and others are, are doing at the moment. They're having to write letters, obviously, to their clients saying, you know, your portfolio could be down by 10% or more. You know, what do you think is the, is the sort of best path uh, outcome from here, given that we've got all these uncertainties? You know, we've got interest rates going up, we've got the war in Ukraine, and we've got uh, central banks, you know, tightening, not just with interest rates, but also possibly with removing stimulus. What are they most worried about? Are they most worried about inflation or are they worried about interest rates or are they worried about geopolitics or all three? I've got to say, there's a lot to worry about, basically. I mean, geopolitics and obviously the situation in Ukraine is, is capturing everyone's attention. And there is the possibility in that instance that it could spiral even further out of control, that the situation, a mess, a dreadful mess as it certainly is, could get worse. And I think people are keeping more than half an eye on that, frankly. I mean, inflation, it doesn't seem that long ago that you and I were talking about was inflation transitory or not? You know, probably about this time last year, we were having those discussions and clearly that argument has moved on. If this is not transitory, we know that we are now seeing some proper inflation numbers coming through. But markets are, are very skittish. And I think the point actually that we made last week, if there is any kind of resolution, let's hope there is in the situation in Ukraine, you would imagine that markets will, will move up uh, significantly on the back of that. I mean, arguably, we may have already started to see that. I mean, markets are very forward-looking and, and frankly can get ahead of themselves, has been known uh, <laughs> on a number of occasions. But that would certainly be my expectation. But I mean, overall, I mean, talking to various investors, wealth managers, professional investors this week, I mean, I think they're just, you know, as one said to me, it's a kind of, it's a tin hat moment which is perhaps a slightly unfortunate illusion given what's going on at the moment. But I think you've just got to hunker down. I think you've got to just make sure you have that diversification. You back the asset classes that you're positive on and the investment teams that you believe can steer the course through the long term. But just be prepared to accept that it will be bumpy. I mean, one of the things that we look at specifically in moments like this as fund selectors is where you see style drift, that um, a particular investment team or a fund manager who claims to have a particular way of investment veers off that because that can lead to problems. If you're trying to build portfolios that comprise any number of uh, investment strategies and vehicles and all the rest of it, if an, a component part of that suddenly kind of veers off course, then that can be problematic. So that's certainly one thing that we're, we're keeping an eye on. Indeed. And I think the point about diversification is very important. I mean, we spend a lot of time looking at numbers, you know, what kind of returns investment trusts make and comparing them with a benchmark or comparing with the index or whatever. And, uh, you know, you can underperform, but it isn't necessarily a bad thing if when, when the bad times come, like they have come, you're actually, you know, you're there for a different reason. You're there for the resilience during the bad times. And that's when you realize the value of diversification. It tends to be forgotten when markets are going up you know, in a straight line or, or very rapidly, at least, as we saw after the vaccine rally. It's only when things get tough that you find out the, the value of your diversification. And uh, I think that's a message that uh, we will be learning again as we go forward. So that's all we have time for this week, episode 101. And uh, we look forward to uh, next week and hopefully many more. So thank you, Simon, for your time. And we'll be, uh, well, I'll be seeing you uh, tomorrow in person. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.